dismissed. And I would like to welcome Graham McKay. This is the first week of the Old Testament survey. Give him a hand. Good morning. Well, this is a great uh, morning of celebration as a church, and um, baptism has just historically been one of the just high points of Christian worship and celebration, so just being able to celebrate together as a church and have community and celebrate with people as they declare and identify with, with Christ um, is just incredible. Well, uh, this morning, as been said, it is the first of a series where we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. And I know for some people, the Old Testament is kind of like that really difficult, large part of the Bible that you tend to maybe not give as much attention to, or it comes up in your daily readings and you're kind of like, oh, Leviticus, how long is Leviticus? I just wish we could get done with Leviticus, you know? And I'm sure that nobody in here feels like that, but some people I've heard have a sense that the Old Testament is really difficult to get a hold of because it happened so long ago in a whole other part of the world with people's names that we can't understand, we don't know how to say them, and it can be very difficult to kind of get our minds around the Old Testament. The thing is, it's such a key component and such a foundational part of our lives as Christians. And whether you realize it or not, when you read the New Testament, you're reading a lot of Old Testament as well. There's so much of the Old Testament that's either directly quoted or referred to indirectly in the New Testament. And Jesus would have read the Old Testament. He would have known it, studied it, memorized it. The Apostle Paul, likewise, would have known and memorized and studied the Old Testament. The disciples, the followers of Christ, would have known this book incredibly well. In the summer, we did a podcast uh, with the Morrises, the New Day Today podcast, the number one rated podcast for all things New Day. That's right. And Amber Morris asked the fundamentally deep question of, is the Old Testament too old? (laughs) Which was great. We were really laughing about that question because it was so great before the podcast. And then when it got recorded, it was very serious. (laughs) But that was a great question. Because sometimes I think we can think, it is, it's too old for my life. You know, they didn't even have computers back then. And so, you know, it's just like, what relevance does the Old Testament have? But I, I hope over the next few weeks you'll see that it really is the bedrock of our faith. And it really deeply influences how we understand God, how we understand ourselves, and how we understand uh, the whole of creation. So this week, we're going to do a broad overview of the Old Testament, and it will be sweeping, (laughs) there will be very little detail, and then we're going to go into the book of Genesis, and hopefully get through um, looking at the book of Genesis this morning. Um, Next week, we'll finish up looking at the first five books of the Old Testament called the Law, and the week after, we'll look at a section called the Prophets, and then in the the last week, we'll look at the Writings, which is the third section um, of the Old Testament. So if somebody uh, were to say to you, what is the Old Testament about? If they give you like two or three minutes to sum up the Old Testament, some of you might be able to do that and might feel really equipped to do that, but some of you may be like, oh man, I hope nobody ever asks me that question because I'm not so sure. Well, I like to think about the Old Testament in terms of story. And this is one way that you can think about the Old Testament. For me, it's the story of how God has created all things. He created them good and he created them in accordance with his will. 
including humanity. Uh, Very, very quickly though, creation was corrupted by the fall. Corrupted by the fall and sin and corruption entered into this good creation. But then God started this long process of restoration. And it's a process that actually isn't fully complete. And we're still living in the days where we look for that final, final restoration of all things. But God chose to work out this plan of restoration by choosing a particular person, a particular family, and then eventually the nation of Israel. And the Old Testament is the story of how God works with this one nation of Israel to work out over time this plan and this story of restoration. What you, uh, what you see is a major theme in the Old Testament is that the corruption of sin and the fall is so deep and it's so permanent that it really is impossible for us as humans to overcome it. It is impossible for us to overcome it. It's impossible for us to overcome the barriers that the corruption of sin and the fall have placed between us and God. And so we were originally designed for close relationship with God, to partner with God, and the sin and the corruption that entered as a result of the fall has placed a barrier that we cannot overcome. And the Old Testament is really the story of how the corruption of sin makes it impossible for us to have restored relationship with God. I think sometimes that's why when you read the Old Testament, you come away and you feel like, wow, that is one depressing part of the Bible. It's amazing how many times you're reading a chapter in the Old Testament and the people in it fail to live up to what God has asked them to do. And there's a sense maybe as you finish the Old Testament or as you read the Old Testament of, wow, like, will they ever get it right? Could they just for one second get it right and follow God as he wants to be followed? And there's just this sense of, of you know, failure on the, on the part of humanity to live up to what God has wanted for them. There's also a sense, though, of hope in the fact that throughout the Old Testament, there are all of these glimmers of hope of something better that's to come. So when you finish the Old Testament, there's this real sense, this deep sense of longing for more, for longing for restoration, longing for that gap and that distance that exists between humanity and God to be really bridged and really restored. And you see that in the Old Testament, there's reference to to one who will come and will make this permanent bridging and restoration and will overcome all of the work and all of the corruption that sin has worked in the world. And so that one day we'll be entirely brought back to a place of restoration. And we know in the New Testament that that is Jesus as revealed to us. But as the Old Testament closes, there's a sense both of, wow, the corruption of sin is so deep and so difficult to overcome, but also this deep longing and this deep hope that one will come who will help us to overcome as humanity and to be restored in relationship with God. So where has the Old Testament come from? Just very, very briefly. The Old Testament, as the people of Israel were living out their relationship as a nation with God. They would record things that God had done in the lives of individuals and in the lives of of them as a nation. And initially, the Old Testament was passed on by word of mouth. It was communicated by by just speaking it. And um, children would hear it growing up and they would memorize it. And they would memorize huge, huge, huge sections of it. And as it developed over many, many centuries... Um, The memorization became a key part of what it was to be in the Israelite nation. Around the time that that 
other um, nations in the ancient Near East were able to um, record and to write and to communicate by writing. The Old Testament began to be recorded in writing as well. And you see that it was very, very carefully preserved. And scribes would very carefully dedicate their lives to um, copying translate, and, and keeping going the Old Testament. It was recorded on um, scrolls often made of leather. And um, there's actually a picture of a scroll from Isaiah 38-40 is where it's opened up at. You see on both ends, it's, it's rolled up. And they would unroll it, and they would roll it to the point, point that they needed um, to get to. So that story in Luke 4 where Jesus opens the scroll and uh, reads from Isaiah, it would be something um, just like this. The Old Testament was, was completed about two to 400 years before Christ came to earth. So by the time Jesus and, uh, was on earth, the Old Testament as we know it was already completed. And uh, it was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and communicated to at least 40 different authors. Um, if you look at the Old Testament as a whole, for us, it's um, comprised of 39 different books. It's originally written in the Hebrew language, which was the language of the Israelite people. And because of that, it's also known as the Hebrew Bible. And so um, in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually divided into three major sections, which is the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so that's the order we're going to follow over the next few weeks. So we're going to look um, today a little bit, and we'll finish up next week looking at the law. And then two weeks from now, we'll look at the prophets, and the final week, we'll look at the writings. As I said, this Old Testament was, in many ways, the scriptures, the Bible for Jesus, for the Apostle Paul, for the disciples, and it really framed how they thought about God and how they thought about themselves and about what Christ was revealing about himself to them. How they understood Jesus was really framed by the Old Testament. The Old Testament is also a collection of different types of literature, so there's law, there's history, and there's wisdom, but there's also poetry, and amazingly, about a third of the Old Testament is poetry. And so you really get a sense of that in the newer translations as they're laid out on the page. They try to show you even how they're laid out, um, that they're poetry. Okay, what kinds of events and what types of things happen in the Old Testament? Well, if you ever watch Lost and, you know, they do their recaps at the start of a season, have you ever seen those? You know, like plane crashes, Jack survives, he's the leader, you know, John can walk, that kind of thing. Anybody seen that? All right. Good to know. Well, it's kind of like, we're just going to do a really quick summary of what happens in the Old Testament and just, and just kind of bullet point the major events that happen. And once we do that, then we're going to be equipped to jump into the book of Genesis. And this is just to give you really big picture what happens in the Old Testament. And the goal of this entire series is not to go into depth in one particular story or another. And it's not to really look at the life of, say, Abraham or Moses in, in lots of detail. It's to show you how each of those individual lives fit into a larger whole and to show you how the Old Testament connects together. So you'll have a sense of, oh, I wish you talked about you know this story or that story a little bit more in detail. And just know that that's not my goal, in, uh, and I'm purposefully going to be skimming over a lot of stories in order to show you how it um, fits together as a whole. So what are the major events? What happens in the history of the Old Testament? All right, here we go. Well, first of all, God creates, and it's good, and it's very quickly corrupted by the fall, which is recorded in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But Genesis 1 to 11 is kind of what we call the primeval history or prehistory, and that records such events as the flood and the story of Noah, also the Tower of Babel. 
Genesis 12 through the rest of Genesis through chapter 50 is the story of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God starts to give very specific promises and um, begins to put some things in motion in this plan of restoration with those individuals in particular. Uh, The book of Exodus around 1500 years before Christ is um, the story of how this, um, this growing nation comes out of slavery from the land of Egypt and they wander in the desert for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. During that time they receive the law which is um, the governing um, set of um, laws that really help uh, establish in a more formal way the expectations that God has of them as a people. After 40 years wandering in the desert, they enter a land that had been promised to them hundreds of years earlier, and that land is the land of Canaan. And they entered into that land under the leadership of uh, Joshua, and they settled in that land. After Joshua's death, there was a period called the Judges. And these were individuals who reigned over a period of a couple of hundred years. And some of the Judges were were excellent leaders and some weren't. And there was a general feeling of, um, as they're settling this land and taking it over, of kind of unease and things aren't really um, always settled neatly. And after the period of Judges, the people actually rise up and they say, we want a king and we want a monarchy to be established. They looked at the other nations around them and they said, we want a king to provide more stability because this period of judges is too traumatic and God had said in the law earlier I don't want you to have a king I am your only king but the people insisted so much that God said okay I'll let you have a king and that first king was Saul who ended up to be a failure after Saul you have King David and then King Solomon his son and this reign of um, David and Solomon is about a thousand years BC and this is considered the high point or the golden age in the life of Israel The reign of David and Solomon was a time like no other. After the death of Solomon, two of his sons competed for his throne. And ultimately they competed to the point where the nation of Israel was split into two separate nations. It was separated into the nation of Israel and into the nation of Judah. And uh, Israel was the kingdom to the north comprised of ten of the twelve tribes. And the nation to the south was the nation of Judah, which had two tribes. And if you ever read in the book of Kings and you get a sense of um, so-and-so reigned in, in Judah at the same time as someone else reigned in, in Israel, that's why you're getting a sense that there's more than one king in charge. It's because those two kingdoms are um, established at the same time. The, the uh, kingdom of Israel to the north uh, eventually um, is invaded by the Assyrian Empire. It's the first major empire in, uh, in world history. And uh, the first, that northern kingdom fell around 722 BC. Um, a little while later, the southern kingdom also fell and was occupied by the Babylonians. Unlike the northern kingdom, where the people were were um, were basically dispersed, the um, in the southern kingdom, the Babylonians took a group of the people from Jerusalem, a remnant, and they took them back to Babylon, and um, they were in exile in Babylon. And after a number of decades, they eventually were able to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, and uh, reestablish and rebuild the temple under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so as the Old Testament finishes, they've, they've come back, the people have come back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple, but they are still longing and still waiting for restoration in the truest sense. The, those who saw the temple be rebuilt saw it and they wept. They said it has nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. 
And Solomon's temple was kind of seen as just the most magnificent um, structure and the central part of the life of Israel. And as the Old Testament finishes, there's just a sense of deep longing for more, of deep longing for the one who will come and bring uh, salvation to his people. And, and there's a sense in which, even though they're back in Jerusalem, that they are just desperate for the final and ultimate restoration of all things. So that is the story, kind of the history of the Old Testament. There's about 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament before you hear the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, of John the Baptist um, saying, prepare the way, and then ultimately Christ coming. So that's the overview, and we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit more in the next few weeks. Was that a lot? (laughs) Is that helpful? Um, I remember the first time I heard that the nation of Israel split into two, and I was like, what? I'm like, nobody told me this. I'm like 20 years old, I've grown up in the church, and nobody ever told me that it split into two. Now it makes much more sense. Double the number of kings. So So let's slow down a little, and let's let's jump into the book of Genesis. (laughs) Genesis is the book of beginnings. And it's where God really establishes a foundation for all things. And it's the foundation not just for the rest of the Old Testament, for what follows, but also for the New Testament and what we see in there as well. Genesis begins with the creation story in in chapters 1 and 2. And it's actually uh, told in chapter 1 and then it's retold in chapter 2 with a different emphasis. There's a couple of things that I just want to highlight in particular um, from the creation story, and we're not going to read through it or go into it in too much depth, but there are some themes that I think are really important for the overview of the Old Testament that I want to draw out. First of all, it's the story that establishes God as creator, and that is fundamental to who we are as Christians. It's fundamental to how we understand the world, that God is the creator and source of all things. Uh, We believe he created from nothing. The, uh, The Hebrew verb for create is actually, um, is actually interesting to kind of think about. So this is Genesis 1, 1 to 3 in Hebrew. And the word in green, bara, is the word to create. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that first line. Um, that word for create in Hebrew is only ever used of God. It's never used of humans or anyone else. So when it says in other parts of the Old Testament, so-and-so created or what have you, it's never the same word as this word that's used for God creating. So even though we create, just as you know, we maybe create a piece of art or something like that, there's a sense in which God's act of creating is different than how we create, and that he is the source of all creation. And so even in the language of how the Old Testament is written, you begin to see clear distinctions and clear things about God and who he is. The word in red is also a very interesting um, uh, couple of words in, in this passage. It's only used here and then in one other place in the whole Old Testament, and that's um, Jeremiah 4.23. Now we read those words, and they are the words formless and void, or the words formless and empty. And you may have uh, you know, read those as you're reading through the creation story, where it says that the earth was formless and void, or formless and empty. And God's spirit is, is hovering over the waters, but there's a sense where the whole earth is formless and void or formless and empty. Um, Underlying those words is a sense of chaos, is a sense of chaos and that things are out of control and things aren't in order. 
and it's a sense which is very kind of troubling and a lot not just not just in the life of Israel but a lot of ancient cultures wrestled with this idea of chaos and overcoming chaos and bringing order to the chaos of life and God is shown as the one who brings order to chaos and so what you see is because the earth is described as formless and empty God actually when he creates forms and then he fills so he addresses both of those things. So where it's formless, God creates form. And where it is empty, God fills. So let's see how that works uh, in the uh, story of creation. So on the first day, God creates light from darkness. In the second day, he creates waters. And in the third day, he creates land. So where there was the earth that was formless, he creates the form in the sense of creating light from dark. He creates the seas, and he creates the earth. He creates the land. In day four, five, and six, he then begins to fill what he has formed in the same order. So in day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars in the light and dark that he had formed in day one. In day two, he had formed the, the uh, waters. In day five, he fills those waters with sea creatures, and he fills the sky with birds. On day three, he created the earth, the land itself. And on day six, he fills the land with animals and with people, with Adam and Eve. And so you see that God is a God who forms, and then he fills. He's like that in the creation story, and he's still like that today. In the story of creation, when God creates Adam, he creates him from the dust and he fills his um, breath, or he fills his lungs with breath. He gives life directly. He forms and he fills. You'll notice that in your life, God forms things and then he fills those things. When we are created as new creations, God creates us, he gives us new form, and then he fills us with his life. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. Yeah. The pinnacle of God's creation was, was humanity was Adam and Eve. And the description is that we are made in God's image. This is absolutely key to who we are and how we uh, relate to God and how we think of ourselves. If you ever wonder why, you know, why is human life so precious? We are made in the image of God. We are made in his image uniquely. It was not said of any other thing in creation. What's really interesting to me is that God forms and fills. He formed the entire world he, he formed all of the landmass that is in the world, and yet he put Adam and Eve in one particular small part of it. And then he said, you fill the earth. So God formed and filled, but there came a point where he formed and he did not fill. And he said to humanity, I want you to fill. I want you to fill. And there's a sense of that establishes who we are, designed to be in God. We are designed to be in close, close relationship with God, partnering with him and filling the earth with a knowledge of who he is. If that sounds familiar, it should, because it's essentially the Great Commission. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. We're still called to fill the earth with the glory of God's name and who he is, just as we were designed to before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Everything that God created was essentially good. It was good. It was very good. God himself declared it so. In Genesis 3, you find the utter corruption of everything that God created. So you might know the story of, of how Adam and Eve 
eat of a tree that God had said not to. The main point in the, in the fall is that humanity willfully disobeyed God, willfully went against what God said, and relationship with God was utterly destroyed. It affected our relationship with God, and it affected even the earth itself, became corrupted as a result of sin. Instead of being in close relationship, humanity, Adam and Eve, were now, they were kind of shameful. They were afraid of God. And it was just the total opposite of what God had intended. Yet even in the middle of this story of, of God explaining to Adam and Eve the result of what they've done, the consequences of their actions, and the fact that sin has not entered, death has not entered, corruption has not entered the world, there is hope in what God says. He says to Eve in, in uh, Genesis 3.15, uh, an offspring from you will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is the one who attempted Eve to sin in the first place. And right there you have a promise that becomes central. The remainder of Genesis 1 to 11 really is, um, can be considered separately from Genesis 12 to 50. It's the, it's the rest of Genesis. And Genesis 1 to 11, after the fall, really is a picture of just sin escalating almost out of control. It's this downward spiral where sin is never can never be held in check. It's kind of like the box was opened and it's just, everything flies out and it just causes chaos. And you remember that God brought order to chaos in creation. Well, when sin comes in, chaos enters back in to um, creation. And so some of those stories just seem crazy to us because it's, it's the flood and it's God destroying and it's, it's Noah's story and him wrestling with God and figuring out, you know, to build the ark. And it's the story of Babel where people rose up against God and built a tower up to heaven and they said, essentially, you know, we are, you know, we're going to take over. And they really opposed God to his face. And God had to come in in Genesis 11 and, and disrupt the tower of Babel as they built it, confused their language, and he scattered them across the earth. So you actually see by the end of 11 that people are scattered across the world, but not as God intended. They're scattered across the earth. They fill the earth, but in a way that's corrupted. And actually, apart from Genesis 3 in the fall, Genesis 11 is kind of the low point in the Old Testament. Because for Genesis 1 to 11, there's just been this downward spiral of chaos and sin just out of control. And you're wondering, where is the hope? In Genesis 12, we start to see it. God speaks to Abraham. God speaks to Abraham. And out of all of this chaos, God speaks. And God speaks to Abraham and he speaks three particular words of blessing. First of all, he says that Abraham will have many descendants. Second of all, he said that those descendants would settle in the land of Canaan. And third, that Abraham would be a blessing to all peoples. Abraham is the father of the Israelite nation, and we consider him a father in our faith as well because he is the example of what it is to live faithfully um, before God. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament frequently cites Abraham as the example of what it is to live in faith. The development of Israel as a nation continues in the life of Abraham, and then in Abraham's son Isaac, and then in Jacob. And in Jacob, um, the, the end of Genesis is really slows down and really deals with the life of Jacob in a lot more detail. And Jacob is the one who has the 12 sons and the, whose names become the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's in Jacob that you suddenly get this sense of, okay, the promise of descendants that God gave to Abraham is becoming fulfilled when you see all of these sons being born. 
the favorite son of Jacob is Joseph, and probably familiar with the story of Joseph, sold into slavery in Egypt. And the book of Genesis finishes with, with Jacob being brought back to um, his son Joseph, and they're reunited in a very kind of dramatic scene in, in Egypt. They're reunited before Jacob dies, and Jacob's last act is to bless all of his sons and to give them blessings and to, and to give identity. And interestingly, that identity will play itself out in the different tribes as the nation of Israel develops and becomes a nation. The very, very final scene of Genesis is Joseph, who has been a ruler in the land and highly favored. Joseph passes away. He dies. His body is embalmed in a coffin. And Genesis 1, that starts with God speaking, the act of creation and bringing um, order, bringing order to the chaos. The very final picture of Genesis is Joseph dead, embalmed in a coffin. And so you have the sense of what went wrong, like what's going on here that this would be the final scene. The book that starts with life ends with death. And yet in the background surrounding um, Joseph's um, body as it lays in that coffin is this growing family and what that says is God hasn't forgotten the promise that though Joseph is dead, the promise surrounds him and that God is at work in the background to bring that restoration. Okay, three major themes <clears throat> from the book of Genesis just to finish up this morning. The first one is the theme of descendants. I would say that this is the major theme in the book of Genesis after the fall is this idea of descendants. So God promises in 3.15 to Eve that you know, a descendant or her offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And this question then drives the book of Genesis. Who is the descendant who will crush the head of the serpent? And for us, we know that it's Jesus ultimately. And we know that. But as the book of Genesis is unfolding, as the Old Testament's unfolding, they have yet to come into that knowledge. So the question is constantly, who is the one who's going to bring this restoration and crush the head of the serpent? Who is the one? In Genesis 1 to 11, as all of this chaos is going on and as everything seems to be spiraling out of control, the question is always, who is the one? Have you ever read Genesis and wondered, why do they throw in those genealogies and those long lists of names in the middle of all of the action? You know? Well, the point is, they're saying very clearly, this book is about descendants. So it's really important to know who comes from who because we're trying to figure out where is this person going to come from? Where is this descendant going to come from? And in Genesis 12, it becomes clear it's Abraham. It's Abraham is the one. Somebody from the line of Abraham will bring this restoration. And that's why, if you're reading Genesis, the book is so relentlessly focused on Abraham and the direct line from Abraham. And there's a sense in which there's other people who are involved, like Lot is involved for a few chapters and Laban is involved for a few chapters, but they come into the story and then they leave the story. And the reason for that is the, is, is, is the story is so driven by this idea of who is the one, who is the descendant of Eve that will bring restoration. Now that we know it's in Abraham's line, we're just going to talk about Abraham and his descendants because that's all that matters at the end of the day is who is the one. And that's why you have the focusing on the story the way you do. Genesis is actually structured for us in 50 chapters, but really it's 10 different stories that talk about descendants. So when you read it um, carefully, you see this phrase, 
this is the, um, these are the descendants of, or this is the story according to. And that actually happens ten times in, in the scriptures. Actually, one, the first one is, this is the story of the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on, you know, later in the book. The last story is, this is the story of Jacob. And it just frames it up in terms of descendants. And it drives home the point that Genesis is about who is the one. Who is the one? So, the second major theme after descendants is land. And so we kind of hinted at this a little bit earlier. But the promise to uh, Abraham was that his descendants would settle in the land of Canaan. Well, where are they at the end of Genesis? They're in the wrong land. They're in Egypt. And this is a very real problem at this point in the story. And what you'll see is, over the, next, over the course of the remainder of the first five books of the Bible, is how does God get those people who are in the wrong land into the right land? How does that transition happen? And that's a major theme. And finally, uh, the theme of rule and covenant. God establishes himself in Genesis as the ruler of all things, the creator of all things. And one way that he, uh, he rules is he binds himself in covenant. And covenant is a legal, formal, incredibly binding agreement that puts responsibilities on both parties. And God willfully chooses and actually initiates these relationships of covenant. And he enters into covenant with various people in the Old Testament. And this becomes a major, major theme throughout the Old Testament, is that God, God is always in covenant with his people. He always binds himself in strict and close relationship with his people. And he does it voluntarily. And he always upholds his end of the bargain. Whatever the conditions upon God are, he always always is faithful to them, and he always fulfills his part. The story of the Old Testament is how God always fulfills his part of the covenant agreement, and the people never fulfill their part. And despite the unfaithfulness of the people, God is always faithful to his end of the bargain. God is always faithful to what is asked of him. So those are the three major themes. Themes of descendants, of land, and of rule, God's rule, and God's in covenant relationship with his people. Next week, we're going to pick up the story. We're going to look at the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That will finish out the law, so um, that'll be next week. And we're going to see um, a few things in particular. One, we're going to see that the story gets worse before it gets better. And then we're going to also see the most dramatic story in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the life of possibly the most important person in the Old Testament. So um, let's pray as we finish. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have communicated clearly to us who you are. God, we just thank you that you are creator, that you have created all things, and that you are ruler in our lives, and that you have joined yourself into covenant relationship, even with us. Father, I just pray that over these next weeks you would help us to understand your word more clearly, to fall in love with you, Jesus, even more as we see you revealed in the Old Testament. And Father God, as we just read your word, may it just speak clearly to us and uh, show us how to live before you. In your name we pray. Amen.